Hello, I'm Evan Lucas, Head of Strategy at Investmart. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer Columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And here we go, one, two, three, and we are The, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. I can never get that right. Every I don't know how Alan and you guys get that right every time. I always manage to just sort of, yeah, music wasn't my strong suit. Don't know about you, but uh, it's, uh, it's always the interest. So big week, James, huge, huge week in terms of something that Australians for the last decade and a half haven't been faced with for a, a long, long time, and that is the prospect of not only interest rate rise, it's interest rate rises, and the plural is, is, the, is the big question. What did you see in the inflation read, and, and how are you now looking at, at what you think is going to happen over the next two years about rates and how the economy is going to handle it? I think the big thing, Evan, from the inflation uh, data is how wrong everyone was. And I, I know um, a lot of people will focus on the fact the RBA was wrong, but the, the market um, undercooked inflation uh, generally, broadly. So, uh, you know, it, it was hard not to be <laughs> sort of taken aback with the the size of the jump. I mean, you know, inflation at 20-year highs um, doesn't look good. And, and I guess it probably confirms a little bit of what we're all feeling, right? Um, it's dangerous to rely on anecdotal evidence, but we all feel that prices have been jumping and, and the world's been getting more expensive, and I guess now we've got some hard data to prove it. So um, we're not imagining it. That's that's good. Um, but, yeah, the question now is, I guess there's two questions. A, when do they start raising rates? And next week. B, as you said, how high can they get? Yeah, next week. It has to be next week. Um so on your point around inflation, I actually I actually did the modelling and I, I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but I actually did say that headline inflation could have a five handle in front of it. And the reason right. I said that was because people forget how intertwined transportation is into everything that we do. So if mm. you look at the numbers yesterday and transportation was huge, which should have been expected because we'd already seen in January, we saw a jump in oil prices of about 15 to 20% through January. And then at the end of February, we know what Russia did with walking across the border into Ukraine. Yeah. The other thing I think was forgotten is at the time, they were having issues with um, Blue Jay, which is the a component they put into diesel. Um, yes, and, yep. and there was a shortage yep. of that. So yep. diesel prices particularly were already jumping. And therefore... In Australia, we are incredibly good at producing food. We just have a very big country, therefore moving it around makes it very expensive. And you're right, you could feel it. I mean, the other thing that happened in the first quarter that we sort of sometimes get lost and how much did impact food prices was the East Coast floods. So the example that at the time I was talking about was you look at a price of a piece of cauliflower, not something that everybody buys, I understand. It's a somewhat desired vegetable. Um, it went from about $3.50 to $7.50. In terms of per kilo, you, you look also at a head of lettuce. An iceberg lettuce now will cost you about $5.50 at the start of the year to be 2 bucks. So that's not 6% jump in price. That's, you know, four times in some respects in terms of what you're looking at in, in that space. So headline inflation I thought was always going to be mental. It was the core inflation in terms mm. of seeing that at 3.7%. And I agree with you. So getting back to your point about rates, they have to move next week. That's an absolute certainty from the point of view that why have we got emergency level target rates at 0.1 of 1%? Even if they move 15 basis points to 0.25 and set the runway for, for raising rates, they just have to do it because it needs to be seen as a 
the inflation will be seen as a negative thing, which is true and possibly should be. But the economy also is sort of somewhat backing it as well. And and we have unemployment that is technically in a three-handle if you go out to two, you know, two points rather than just one. Um, and if you look at GDP, that's going quite neatly as well. Yeah. But this is where I'm different. We sometimes forget that monetary policy is not just about price stability. It's the first thing they talk about, but there are two other parts to their mandate, and that is full employment, which we're getting towards, but also normal economic activity. If you raise rates too hard, and this I think is the next question for you, James, if you raise rates too hard and you start to impact the other two, what causes you to stop? And I and I, I think that needs to be your question for you, is how, how are the RBA going to do this with the rate rises? How are they going to make sure that they do start to look at price stability but don't create such a shock that the recovery out of the COVID crisis isn't impacted so severely? Yeah, it's a great question, Evan, and I'm I'm not sure exactly what the answer is. I, I mean, I think they can probably keep uh, raising through most of this year. My, my question is more, do they then, is there a point perhaps early next year or at the end of this year where they pause and, and they, they sort of take stock of where they've got to? I mean, I, I don't think there's any doubt that, you know, rates can certainly get towards 1% or 1.5%. Or, or um, do they get there by the end of this year or does it take a little bit more time? I, I think you're right. The RBA is going to be careful um, about the pace and this will come back to what Lowe's been talking about for a lot of the last two years and that's employment. You know, he's, he's not convinced uh, that, wage growth is going to follow inflation higher. He, he, he's just not convinced, and that's fair enough. I mean, the, 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 the evidence isn't very convincing that that's going to happen. Um, so I, I think he's going to be prepared to wait a little bit on that, on that, um, uh, that little sort of that, that, that question. What, what, what yeah. to, how hard can he push now? Um, and, and what what are the wages going to do? And then I think the other question, Evan, is is what 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 does household indebtedness mean? We, we know it's high, but how much buffer, how much cushion do households have? Now, it appears they've got plenty. So there's strong savings built up. Uh, half of mortgage holders, roughly, this is a rough number, are, are three months ahead or more on their mortgages. So there's a, there's a good cushion. But will people be prepared to run those buffers down and keep spending? That, that's, that's, the, that's the interesting question, I think. As, as rates go up and, and interest payments go up, will people say, okay, I've got some savings, I'm prepared to run them down and keep enjoying life, or will their confidence start to wane and they'll say, oh, I'm prepared to, I, I can cop the higher interest payments, but I'm going to have to make cutbacks in other discretionary areas. That, I, I don't know what the answer to that question is, and and I don't think anyone does uh, because we haven't had household um, indebtedness this high. We haven't seen rate increases for, what is it, 11 years, and Absolutely. we haven't seen this sort of inflation really in anyone's living memory. So there's a lot to play for. Yeah, and I think you're, you're dead right about I don't think anybody knows. I mean, nobody expected housing prices to go ballistic at the peak of of COVID, like to actually see that if you look from June 2020 to where we are now, 
house prices have, have grown in some cities as much as 40% if you look at them in the combined two years. The other question I've got for you as well is how do you think inflation will be infected where realistically monetary policy or raising interest rates, as you've correctly pointed out, is all about trying to to stem people's spending and, and sort of rein that in. That's a demand-led side constraint. A lot of the inflation that we saw is on the supply side. So how, how do you think that will play out in the fact that maybe interest rate rises don't actually have the kind of impact on inflation like on textbook they should. How, how do you see that playing out as well? Yeah, that's a great question, Evan. I've just got off the call this morning with um, Steve Kane from Coles. Coles had their March quarter sales. And his message really was inflation's coming through. It went from zero inside Coles in the December quarter to 3.3% in the March quarter. Wow. But, but the, the key message was this is really only just getting started. That the the requests from suppliers to increase prices, you know, we're at the start of that cycle because, you know, they were prepared to sort of hold the line, but now with rising commodity prices, rising raw materials, rising packaging costs, higher energy costs, higher transport costs, now they're being forced to move. So. But you're right. And that's all supply. That's all supply. Right, yeah. R- rates aren't going to change too many of those things. So, but, uh, you know, I, I know when you've only got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But I, 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 I guess what else What else can the RBA do but try and take some heat out of the economy with, with higher rates? I, I don't see another option. Um, but to your point, perhaps it is an option that needs to be used with a little bit more caution and a little bit more wariness about what you do to the broader economy. Yeah, and I think that goes to your answer before about the RBA taking those pauses, is that, that it will be watching very closely the economic activity impact of rate rises. So I actually think that and listening and seeing how Lowe works, he's a very conservative thinker in what he does. Yeah. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if he goes significantly, and that's a deliberate word, slower than what the market thinks. I It would not surprise me at all if the Australian target rate is only at 0.75 of 1% come Christmas uh, just because yeah. he'll want that time. He'll want the time to understand where is the wage price index, where is the economic growth. He'll have three and a half quarters of CPI numbers that he'll know about, and they'll be high. Let's, let's not you know, sugarcoat that in any way, shape or form. But just feeling him, he, he will be slower, whereas the market thinks by come December, the cash rate should be not only above 1.5, it should be getting towards 1.75 and touching 2 in some instances. So mm. it will be – it's an incredible scenario to watch. There's no doubt about that. And and as I said, my concern is, yeah, and I love you, you know, everything looks like a nail. The way I've always said it's similar, similar is if you – how do you do fine art with a sledgehammer? Um, yeah, because that's yeah. what interest rates are. You've got a sledgehammer trying to do fine art to rein in certain parts of the economy. Now, housing's always been the big debate, but now it's across the economy as well and, and certainly something that is going to be easy to watch. I'm going to move on. The other thing we need to talk about on the big, big picture is, is China. I think it's being lost a little bit about how much of an impact what is going on in China is going to happen to Australia how do you see the ripple effects that are playing out with COVID zero in China for us here in Australia? Well, look, I, I, I think there's the, the sort of short term and the long term. I mean, we've seen some panic. And I don't think that's too strong a word on Chinese markets earlier in the week. 
um, when they when investors there sort of understood the ramifications of further lockdowns. But I think there's two ways that you need to think about this. The, the first is that China could be locked down or, or restricted for, for a pretty long period of time. I'm not sure how they get out of this quickly. You know, their, their Sinovax vaccine is crap. Um, yep. it, we know from over here that COVID zero is very difficult to sort of hold on to. Um, you know, in, in parts of Australia, we tried for a long time and then gave up. Um, yeah. So, so I wonder if if this is a you know, you know, is the is this year gone for China from a sort of economic standpoint? I, I don't know, but that, that, so that, the question for you on that that I'd put to you is: so the fifth plenum is October, and that yeah. is when President Xi will almost certainly it's been rubber stamped. Let's be honest, be voted in for an almost indefinite period, breaking with you know tradition of a two term presidency. Do you think he lets go after that? Is that the is that the break the breaking point? Not sure. I, I, I mean, what does he go to that um, event with though? Uh, you know, he, he can't go. I, I don't think he can go with sort of these mass lockdowns still in place. We've already seen this week the government sort of promising to do more to stimulate the economy. That you know, last night G was out saying pull out all the stops on infrastructure spending. I mean, that's China's oldest trick in the economic book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at the, it, 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 it's about four months since they were going to crack down on property and, you know, rein in the economy and basically tighten um, fiscal policy. And now it's pull out the stops. So I, I, there's a lot of time between now and the uh, and, and that, that party event. I'm just not sure how they handle this. How do they balance the, the health crisis with sort of, smashing the economy I, I i don't know the the one thing i sort of keep in the back of my mind though is at some point um they'll come out of this and gosh they're going to have to go hard to stimulate the economy um and that should be good for australian iron ore producers and mineral producers broadly but the question is how much pain till we get to that sort of takeoff yeah and i'd agree and i think you you're sort of getting part of the answer right now, which is and last Thursday we forget that the ASX 200 got within six points of a record all-time <laughs> high that was reached on the 13th of August last year. But since then has dropped six and a bit percent. But you look at resources, you look at a BHP, it's fallen over 15%. You look at a, a Rio Tinto, you know, 12%, Fortescue, something similar. And then you look at the, the mid-caps that are in all sorts of things like nickel, aluminium, coal, they have been absolutely towed up. So I agree with you. I, there will come a point where China is going to turn on again. And, and when that happens, you know, Australia, as always, the lucky country that we are, will, will boom. There's no there's no doubt I agree with you completely on that. That is going to happen because China will have a problem. They are staring down the barrel of having growth that they haven't seen since the late 80s, early 90s, mm. when they really became industrialised and, and sort of got out of, of being the – the really, really hard sort of, you know, Soviet idea to towards a more liberal economy and more sort of growing economy and uh, under the Deng Xiaoping era. So I agree with that. The, the question I think is, is the amount of health issues, as you pointed out, James, how, how the Chinese population puts up with that? Because 
they finally started reporting deaths in, in terms of what's in there. You're right, the Sinovac is rubbish. They also refuse to use anybody else's vaccinations, mm. which I mm. think is staggering in its own uh, own sort of event. How What happens if they do start having swathes of hospitalizations and deaths? How does that play out? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Just, just your point there, Evan, on the, on what's happened to the the miners in the last few days is a really interesting one too. Because those I wrote this earlier this week that the, the forces, the, the the sort of tailwinds that have helped us withstand uh, the the local market, withstand the Ukraine crisis. You know, our 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 focus on commodities and resources in on the ASX. Now with China becomes a bit of a headwind. It's interesting these two forces sort of pushing against each other, or, or, yeah. or and I'm not sure. You know, it, it, over the last couple of months, everyone's jumped into commodities. It's become the most crowded trade in the world, just about. Um, yeah, it does. But, and but, in all dollar terms, the ISX was actually the best performing market, developed market in the world. Yeah, um, but, but, but you, the China situation hangs over that now, doesn't it? It does, and it changes the, the complexity of what we're, we're looking at. So the, the thing is, though, what we've just spoke about the first part of this discussion is around interest rate rises, is that Australia is basically a barbell. It's got financials on the left, resources on the right, and a few things in the middle making up the bar. Expanding interest rates actually helps banks. So we need to remember that we somehow may actually get around this again by banks showing that their interest margins are improving. And as you said, if bad and doubtful debts hold off because people start using their balance sheets, the homeowner starts using their balance sheets, the results might actually look quite good come August and then at the end of the year for bank earnings season, so CBA in August and the rest of the end of the year that actually might offset any trouble that we get with China in, in the short term. So it's going to be fascinating on that space. Right, we need to keep moving on because otherwise we'll run out of time. I, Twitter and Musk. <laughs> yes. I, I've been having this debate for the last two weeks with all sorts of different people. Uh, Steve Sammartino, who's a futurist and massive tech head, Stephen Main, and obviously him on a shareholder point of view. I'm going to ask you straight out, what the hell does he want with it? What, what exactly is Twitter going to do to, to Musk's business empire? Uh, n- nothing good is, is yeah. my answer. I, I, I cannot see how this is a smart deal for him at all. The, the, the blokes, you know, uh, controlling the perhaps the, the, you know, one of the, the most exciting tech companies we've seen in some time in Tesla, definitely the leader in an emerging market, He's got his foot on the throat of car makers around the world. And how much distraction is this going to cause? I mean, mm. you already see it in the last few days. You know, the, well, it's, 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 share price. Well, share price <laughs> is, is, is a good thing. But just the, this the time and distraction and resources. Oh, I mean, oh, you, we know that the guy's a, uh, you know, a genius and he can multitask like nobody. But I just can't see how he comes out of this winning. I mean, I don't even know what victory looks like in terms of improving Twitter. It, 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 you know, we all know it's a sort of tolerable bin fire, um, <laughs> and I, I can't see how it's really going to improve all that much or even change yeah. all that much. Yeah, and so that's that's exactly what I'm asking the question. Like from a business, if you look at Twitter and actually evaluate Twitter as a business, it's pretty awful. Like, yeah, it's it's. Revenue is choppy at best. Its EPS is all over the shot. Its revenue comes 90% from 
advertising and there's an argument that advertisers are falling away from it because, as you said, it is a bin fire. At best, I'd, I'd actually say it's almost like a picket of, of, of burning fires everywhere around <laughs> it. Um, so there is, you know, the cynics say that he wants to control his narrative. Um, and what, you know, somebody was talking to me about this the other day is that they were trying to understand Tesla's latest release and they rang up their PR firm and the PR firm returned around and said, if you want to know about the results, just look at Elon's Twitter handle. And they were like, what do you mean? And they said, well, you know, all the information you need about the results is there. So that that in itself I think is is sort of an, an interesting mm. insight, anecdotal mm. part. I'm not going to explain where this person comes from, but they have a vested interest to be writing about this kind of stuff. And I, I, I think that in itself shows you that is he therefore trying to control his narrative? He knows full well that he has moved Tesla's share price by using that platform. And we, we've spoken about it many times across yeah. You know, his argument with the SEC, the fact that he got a $20 million fine from it, all that kind of stuff. But again, taking it private and controlling the platform for $43, $44 billion US dollars doesn't make enough sense. And then right. to also finance it with Tesla shares, and you've seen what's happened with that because he's literally put a short into Tesla by using it as a margin call, margin loan scenario. That it, it's it's very very strange. I'm with you. The guy's a genius, and he he sees things like nobody can ever see. So that's fine, and I'm happy that you and I can be proven wrong. But it still, to me, makes literally no sense. It's it's not like everybody's trying to compare it. You know, billionaires buying you know traditional media. It's not that. Mm. It's not like you know buying Nine or buying Fairfax or buying News Corp. It's not that at all. It, this is this is a, a platform slash forum for people to yell at each other and it doesn't <laughs> convey the news like actually buying a traditional news play. Well, I think people, ironically, would probably be more sort of comfortable if he'd done the, you know, the midlife crisis thing of buying a sports team or, a, you know, a newspaper in America or something. That that would sort of it'd be, a, it'd be cheaper, but yeah, it would make a bit more sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, his way of doing that is to buy SpaceX, right? So... He doesn't yeah. need to do that because he's already got it. So what I, I, I remember making a, a quick joke about it when I saw it. I said, this is what happens when boredom kicks in. Um, Maybe. And, 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 and it feels exactly like that. I think you're right. I think it, it's, it's just – I think he wanted a distraction, as you said. I think his brain works so incredibly fast that he just – he wanted something new to do today and, and therefore went, this is what we're going to do. And, and, and away he went. So, uh, yeah, anyway. We will move on. I think we, we need to jump into questions because we've had a huge, huge opening, and, and thank you for that. So let's jump in there. Thank you for all your questions that have been out there this week. I'm going to jump straight into Josh because I think it feeds into the first part of our discussion around rates and rising cost of living. So Josh has written in it, is housing affordability negatively affected by investors and poor governance? He's then gone on to sort of say, is the fear of causing trouble held up by tenants on, you know, six to 12-month leases playing into investors' hands and contributing to the escalating property prices? Would changes in policy just end up adding more cost to tenants? Um, I think I'll leave it there. I'll read the rest of it out in a minute. James, how do, how do you see that? Because there's a few parts of that question that I think are fascinating, particularly changes to policy um, and then also the housing affordability by investors impacting that as well. Yeah, I, I think um, I think obviously any change of policy is going to have an impact on the uh, on the uh, 
housing market because I think it's quite finely balanced the housing market at the moment. It's um, but I'm not I'm not sure whether I'm not sure whether you know the, this the the relationship between tenants and and landlords on a sort of practical level is really having a big impact on on housing affordability. I think that's more of a supply issue and and it's probably more about the taxation uh, policy settings that we've got uh, that allow that, that, that make um, home you know investment property ownership attractive uh, you know perhaps there's some fiddling around the margins we should do but this is really a supply demand issue and a question of you know broader tax settings around property ownership for me I, I, I don't think it's a I don't think those micro, the more micro issues are, are, are a real hindrance on affordability. Yeah, so interesting you say all that. I actually interviewed um, Ben Kingsley from the Property Couch uh, yesterday and he had a really interesting one, exactly sort of I think sort of what Josh was getting towards with housing mm. affordability that he pointed out because obviously he, he is very much a property investor in terms of what he does and he said that there have been 136 individual new legislations introduced into the state of Victoria over the last two years to try and, adverted commas, make things fairer. And if anything, it's actually made it much more expensive for landlords, yeah. and that's transferring through. The other thing that he highlighted that's starting to gain a bit of traction in Europe and also in the US is rate, uh, sorry, rent freezing. Um, and his big concern about rent freezing is that all of a sudden you then have a scenario where the rate that initially is offered will be significantly higher because the idea is that therefore that is the frozen rate for the rest of the tenancy. Yes. <laughs> um, and so that's what they're seeing in, in the US and Europe is that if the price just gets, the price inflation just gets baked in at the start. The supply issue used is the other thing that he highlighted is that at the moment the rental market has a vacancy rate of 1%. It's the lowest it's ever been. So the yeah. competition for rent is is high and therefore pushing them up. So Josh's it's a great question. Affordability is the next one. And so his answer is it has to be around supply, which means construction has to be part of it and a housing supply has to be part of it. The argument I've always put with that is that, unfortunately, in Australia, we are a massive country, 8 million square, mi- uh, square k's of us, but a tiny population that are actually highly centralised in five capital cities and we want to live where we work. That's fairly standard across the globe. There isn't a huge amount of space to be made in those states or if they are, they're in outer suburbs and it's harder to attract people to those spaces to initially start. So it's a it's almost like a circle conundrum and, and that's sort of where we go with that space. Great question, Josh. Thanks for that. Yes, well, James has got a question. He's done something pretty special. He's just started listening to the podcast and binged 15 episodes in a day. Well wow, done, nice James. Yeah. Uh, he's got two quick questions. Uh, firstly, what are the most important metrics to look at when buying a stock for the long term? James is 21 years old and he wants to start considering future in the market. He's future in the market. So what are the best ways to analyse cash flow statements, P&L statements and balance sheets? And the second question is, any chance you could review one stock each episode potentially chosen by a listener and he's got a, a, a suggestion magnetite <laughs> minds well i think we're going to steer clear of the second this is this is uh, there are forums for that and this is not one of them um, I, I, I think you'd agree, Evan. But um, I'd agree. We we can sort of go through them a little bit. But I agree. Unfortunately, James, we can't do the exact one like that because obviously it starts getting intruders as financial advice. 
but I am super excited to see how old you are in starting it. The reason I say that, I was your age too. When I first invested, I was chicken in the fact that I did something pretty simple and easy to choose with regards to how I went down it. I bought a bank and I bought a miner. I bought BHP and I bought ANZ at the time, which made complete sense um, because ANZ was in what I'd done in my research, and I'll get to the answering your question, was cheap. Um, and BHP at the time was trading at $21, and I knew China had just started stimulating itself, so I knew the iron ore price was going to move. So that's why I did it. That's not advice. That's why I did it. Um, so in answer to your question around how do you simply analyse the statements, it, it is have a look at the three simple things. Look at the top line, look at the middle line, and then look at the bottom. What I mean by that is revenue increasing, yes or no, year on year. Is earnings, so I at the time liked to look at EBIT, so earnings before income tax, and again, is that growing? And then not looking at statutory net profit, look at operational net profit. That was my other one that I learned from people around me. Operations is much more important than the final audited statutory figure because all these other little bits and pieces can be thrown into that and it can distort what is actually going on. You know, they could have sold a division and that could be added in. They could have done some write-offs that made their tax position better and therefore make their profit, statutory profit look better, all that kind of stuff. Operations is basically year on year, how is the underlying business working? And so they were the three things that I was taught when I was about your age, 21. The simplest way is to start at those three. Then you can get sexy. Then you can start looking at EBITDA. You can start looking at earnings per share and you can start looking at all the other things, book to value, PE ratios, all that kind of other sexy stuff that you'll hear about. But the simplest way to just understand a business is that is the easiest way to understand cash flow in my view. It's the easiest way to understand how the business is operating. It's generating income from revenue. It's got earnings and paying tax, which is possibly also a good thing to see, and therefore its operating profit is X. That's my view. James, what's yours? Well, look, I, I guess the one thing I'd say, I think your your um, your advice there is great, Evan. And I, I think from a from a sort of tech, you know, looking at the fundamentals, you, you can't go wrong doing that. The only other thing I'd say is there is a bit of a room if you're at the start of this to think about what sectors you think are going to be important over the long term. Think about mm-hmm. a. Think about how you long you think the long term is, is it five years, is it 10 years, is it longer than that? But then start thinking about what sectors you can see or, or you think you can see in the future. Do a bit of research around this about what what's what what businesses have, uh, are going to be, you know, doing well in five or 10 years' time. What, what's the world going to look like? You can't predict this completely, but you can have a think about it and it might guide you into the sectors you want to look at before you start doing that um, that more fundamental analysis that Evan suggested. So you might think about mining, or you might think about banking. How how's, how are those sectors going to change? Where do you want to be? Uh, wh- how do you want to get into those sectors? What what sort of parts of those sectors do you want to play in? So, uh, you know, th- there's there's that, that's a that's a little less technical, but uh, I yep. think it's important to think about you know your time frame for investing. And that last, so before we move on to the next question, just want to highlight that. That's the other thing here for you, James. Time. When you do this, you've got to be thinking time is part of the whole investment process. You can't be thinking I'm going to invest in even BHP or CBA for 12 months. You must be thinking at least three, probably as much as five. Am I going to see BHP grow over the next five years? Am I going to see CBA grow over the next five years? 
I think that's the other part of that. So I'll finish on that because we are running out of time. I'm going to move on to the next one, which comes from Marshall. I wonder if you could cover what the markets did the last time there was stagflation in the 70s and 80s and how would, sorry, how we should best position ourselves to limit those losses. That's a great statement. I, I've actually, somebody asked this a couple of months back, so I've actually done some research. But James, do you want to go first or do you want me to sort of take Oh, no, go for it, Evan. I'm, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm keen to hear. So I that exact question has come to me a couple of times since the start of the year. For good reason, stagflation has been a very, very prominent thing that you're hearing in the media and in markets for good reason. It's somewhat similar because obviously oil prices were, were a big part of what led to stagflation in the 70s. So having a look back, and I had to do some pretty deep dive digging uh, in terms of having a look at it, volatility was clearly up. So that I think is a certainty that you're going to have mm. to experience and, and we're going through that now. Their yearly movements were also about one, even as much as two standard deviations above normal. So what I mean by that is if you take a, a bell curve and, and look at the average of what an ASX moves per year, it was moving significantly higher than what it normally does. Uh, it was moving 15 to 20% up or down during that period. So unfortunately, that's where the volatility comes forward. However, over the 72 to 81 sort of stagflation crash period, the ASX from the start of the crisis in end of 71 and start of 72 to 1980, net overall was up 21%. So that that is, again, getting back to also James's question about looking at it, this is where time comes into it. And you're never going to find the top. You're never going to find the bottom of a market. And even during those really volatile times and the ups and downs would have experienced into year and intra a couple of years, the market still actually managed to gain. And then during the 80s, it had another period. Um, it really took off during 81 through to around about 85, fell during sort of 86, 87 flash crash and 89 flash crash um, kicked in there. And then the 90s, took off again, fell in there in 1996. So what I'm probably trying to highlight, stagflation is another geopolitical risk event that markets deal with. They will be an issue like the GFC. They will be an issue like the Asian financial crisis or the dot-com bubble or the European hard landing or whatever event you want to take. But if you look at it, the timeframes of them are in investment periods, short. They're you know, at the max five-year problems. Um, and again, if you look through them, Marshall, you can actually see that things do quite well. So it's about trying to make sure that you understand your strategy and don't break it because stagflation will mean things slow down. There's no doubt about that. It will create volatility. That's also certain. But the underlying markets are basically just a collection of companies put together and companies are trying to improve themselves, or at least they should be, particularly if they're listed because that's what their shareholders want them to do. And by improving, that should mean over time that they do better, that their revenue grows, their earnings grow, and their profit grows. Cracking answer, Evan. Thank you. <laughs> well done. Um, all right. Uh, last question is from Joe. So he's had a thought. If or when interest rise, rates rise 2 to 3%, as we've been talking about, for the average uh, mortgage holder of a, with a $650,000-odd loan, Will the federal government come out with another ravage your, your super scheme where they allow you to pay down your mortgage with your super? Any thoughts? Think that's likely? Or, Short answer, um, no. Yeah, I, I'm a no too. I, I, 
I see where Joe's coming from, though. There is a mm. cohort in the coalition um, who believe that uh, super should be accessed for home ownership, particularly. Um, Tim Wilson has been very strong on that, a Melbourne parliamentarian and frontbencher. Might but I, in a couple of weeks. I, I, I can't see this happening, Evan. I, I'm, yeah. But yeah. I do, but I I do know I think Wilson's where Joe's coming from. Yeah, well, the, the Goldstein is going to be fascinating because I actually think he's under immense pressure to hold on to that seat. I, I think Zoe Daniel is coming hard and fast, and I actually think she'll beat him. Um, so he's he's an interesting one. I I can't see it. I think we need to put 2020 into context. COVID was, although we're now two years out of it, we understand it. 2020 was the most unsecure year that I can remember in terms of anything I've done in markets, and that includes the GFC um, because the health crisis, just everybody had no idea how big, bad it could be, um, and therefore that special dispensation that was given to access super made sense at the time, but in hindsight was a bad thing. I remember at the same time saying, no, the people that are acting this are the people that, that need super more than anything. Um, because every time you take a dollar out, yeah. the impact that it has on your long-term financial future is incredible. So I, I don't think this should happen. Also from the point of view that you are probably allowing and fueling the ability for the housing market to continue power on because it means that your borrow capacity can get higher because you've got access to an additional funds. Um, and, and that would also be a slight issue in my eyes. You can disagree with that, but I think you need to think of it that way as well as that that money, super is is trying to smooth out your cash flow over time. That's exactly what super's for. Super is designed to basically go, I need money into the future to live to when you do retire. And and not many people can think past five years, 10 years, let alone thinking for, you know, a lot of people that have super for 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, for someone like James, our, our previous question, who's 21 years old, he is three lifetimes away before he's going to get that super money, if yeah. you think about it, um, for what he's had already. So I, I, I just don't think it would be a very good idea to touch super to pay off housing, although it sounds on headline as a good idea. It, it just isn't. Your money needs to be thinking as a whole and housing's not the only thing that your money is designed to do. You need to live with it. You need to obviously have an ability to, to, to live into the future and, and that's exactly what super is. It's one of the, the best things ever invented and, and hats off to Paul Keating. Yes, well said. But no, I think I think we're safe on that score, Joe. Yes. I think, is that it? I think that is. Yeah, we've done well. I think, I think that is. That's, that's a cracking episode, James. Thank you for that. No worries. Yeah. So um, thanks for, for listening today. The, for Stephen and Alan are back next week. So if you've got a question, please send them in to themoneycafe at theeurekareport.com.au. Until next time, thank you for listening to me for the last two weeks. I'm Evan Lucas, Head of Strategy and Investment. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. Talk to you all soon. Thanks, Evan. Great fun. Thanks, James. Thanks, James.